Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is it. The beginning of our Faustathon. This is big, and it's gonna take a few months. So we figured we'd start with some background information on Goethe, the man behind Faust. Like with Cervantes, the more you know about the context, the deeper and richer the content. And fortunately, I have an in with a professor of German literature. So for this introductory episode, I interviewed my friend Rachel about Goethe, the Sturm und Drang, Weimar classicism, the origins of the Faust myth, and the persistence of that myth into the present. If you're online, check us out at thecannonballpodcast.wordpress.com. Find us on Facebook at The Cannonball Podcast and on Twitter at Cannonball Pod. The Cannonball is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. Check out some of the other shows in the network at agorapodcastnetwork.com. And if you wouldn't mind taking a quick survey, we'd really appreciate it. Agora is trying to find out who our listeners are so that we can cultivate the network appropriately. Uh, if you check out the show notes, you can find a link to the poll. So please click on that link, take the poll, and let us know who you are. One last note, if you're in the New York area and need reading and writing tutoring or are interested in online tutoring, let us know. I have a tutoring business on the side and a newborn, so I'm always looking for a few new clients. If you need more some help, send an email to claudemoinc at gmail.com. That's C-L-A-U-D-E-M-O-I-N-C at gmail.com. We can also produce literary lectures on demand. Not entirely certain what situations would call for that, but for some quality literary infotainment, hit us up. Welcome to The Cannonball, a podcast attempt to read all of the books in Harold Bloom's list of the Western canon. This is Claude Myron Guzer, and we've got something a little bit different today. Uh, Daniel and I are going to be launching into a sort of intensive read of Goethe's Faust, books one and two, or I guess parts one and two. And uh, before we did, we thought it would be beneficial to do some 
sort of explanatory background information on Goethe, on Faust, on where this fits in with everything, because when we did that with Cervantes, it was really, really helpful to orient Cervantes. Uh, now, I lucked out. I have a friend who is a German professor. Uh, so I figured this would be an opportunity to drag my friend Rachel into this and have her explain to us a bit just sort of who Goethe was, what was going on in the writing, what Faust is about, uh, just the general context for understanding how this piece of writing came to be. So, Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Happy to be here. All right. Great. Uh, that's because we're just starting. All right. So, <laughs> so okay. Goethe lived from uh, 1749 to 1832. So that's a, a long stretch of time. He, he lived a good long time. And he he occupies this kind of central place in the German language canon. Could could you start out, I guess, by giving us a little bit of background information on Goethe and, I guess, his role in a couple of different movements in German language literature? Uh, certainly. So, um, as you were saying, he was born in the middle of the um, 18th century, and uh, he studied. He he did well for himself. Um, he had, you know, had a pretty typical bourgeois um, upbringing, and um, he started writing uh, already as a, a young man, as a student. And so, one of the things that I know you may have noticed about Faust is that it seems a little bit uh, disjointed. Mm. Uh, and um, the reason for that is because he wrote, he started writing um, pieces of it when he was in his early 20s. So he started oh, wow. at age 21. Um, what I think is really ironic is that he wrote um, the, the part about Faust um, in his study, lamenting um, having lived his whole life and not having had a lot of meaning and everything like that. And he was writing that as a 21-year-old. <laughs> I guess the parallel is Elliot writing uh, Proof Rock when he was like 22. It's sort of like, oh, I'm an old man who's wasted my life. You're a kid. Yes. Get over it. But. <laughs> Doesn't he? So, you know, the Auerbach's Keller, uh, the Auerbach's Cellar, yeah. the bar scene, um, is something that he actually did a, a lot when he was a student. He actually visited <laughs> Auerbach's Keller. There was a bar named that. Oh, wow. Um, and, uh, so, and you know, there's a recreation of it now where you can see kind of a shrine to Goethe. <laughs> oh, cool. Cool, cool, cool. Um But, yeah, and then he, he returned to the work um, at various periods during his life. So, you know, starting in... Um, I want to say about, I think I have it written down. Oh yeah. So he, he started work on it in 19 or in 1770. I, I told myself I wasn't going to say 19, for the year, but you know, whatever. I, so I he starts in the hippie yeah. era and ends in the disco era. So the... <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. So it's, I mean, um, so I, I should say I'm a, um, you know, a 20th century, more of a 20th century scholar myself. So, um, but you, you have to know Goethe. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, the 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 sort of major hit, the first major hit was uh, Sorrows of Young Brother, right? Mm -hmm. um, has a major cultural impact. Now, is that 
connected to the Sturm und Drang or yes. was that pre? Okay. So could you tell us a little bit for anyone who doesn't know what the Sturm und Drang was and maybe uh, a little bit about Werther's connection to it? Sure. Um, so Sturm und Drang um, is often translated as storm and stress right. movement in uh, English. And it was um, about 1765 to 1785 is typically considered. Those are typically typically considered the bookend years for it. Right. Um, and so this was smack dab during the Enlightenment and Sturm und Drang was really a reaction against mm. the Enlightenment, um, against the idea of um, sort of pure reason and and morality being the driving forces um, and be, behind decisions and things like that. And so Sturm und Drang was all about just passion and right. emotion and, um, and things <laughs> like that. So, so yeah, were there... Um, as you mentioned, was really considered one of the pivotal texts of it. Mm -hmm. And it was a um, Bildungsroman, mm -hmm. or a sort of like a, um, uh, you know, the uh, young man's journey and everything like that. And um, really inspired a lot of young angsty men at the time. <laughs> I mean, they were really emulating the, the lead character yeah. um, to the point of, so it's sort of like a pop culture icon almost. Right. Um, they were dressing like Werther. They were, um, you know, committing suicide like Werther. Right. Um, so it was, it was just highly influential. And so it made such a splash for Goethe that, um, you know, really he could do anything he wanted after that. Gotcha. So that sort of established his, his reputation more yeah. or less. And, mm -hmm. and he was, I guess, part of the Sturm und Drang along with Schiller? Um, or sort of like a main driving performer? Well, Schiller, I would say, um, yeah, Schiller was also part of the Sturm und Drang. Um, he, uh, you know, a lot of the main important texts of Sturm und Drang are plays, are theater works um, right. that may or may not have been intended to be performed. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I can't imagine performing some of these. The, the scope, the scope, I mean, I'm just now reading um, the Ro Schiller's The Robbers with my literature students and um you know, we've we've kind of talked about some of the the scenes in the woods where they, um, you know, they're surrounded by hundreds of people on horseback, and you know, how how would this work? Um, but it's um, yeah. So Schiller um, and Goethe they didn't really um, meet and become friends until later. Um, okay, I think okay. it was 1794. So gotcha. um, they're considered to be the two sort of main figures of the Weimar, of Weimar classicism. Okay. So the Sturm und Drang, uh, all right, do, do I have this straight? The Sturm und Drang sort of bleeds into German romanticism, but then Weimar classicism is this other kind of thing that occurs sort of concurrently or, or after the Sturm und Drang, but concurrently with the romantic movement? Yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah. And and romantic German romanticism was really um, kind of fashioning itself, uh, setting itself up against Weimar classicism. 
Okay. Okay. So what then was Weimar classicism? So um, it's really, I would say, as you said, it um, was right after Sturm und Drang, um, Goethe started traveling. He traveled to Italy. Um, he kind of wanted to get back into using classical models um, as opposed to so Sturm und Drang was really getting away from the Greeks um, and it, Weimar classicism was reestablishing the connection to Greek aesthetics. Okay. So what the, all right. So he sort of <laughs> starts. Complicated. No, no, I, I, I mean, hell we have PhDs. Of course it's complicated. Even <laughs> if it's not, we find ways to complicate things. But, um, okay. So the, the move then is sort of to flee this kind of classicism with the Sherman drawing, but then come back to it with, the, the sort of Weimar classicism, what, did, did the Sturm und Drang just kind of wear itself out? Did it just kind of reach an end point? Did it become untenable? Uh, what was the move there? Or at least, okay, if you can't speak generally to it, because I, I guess the generalizations are, are, are kind of useless to a degree. What was Goethe's position there? Why did he move from one thing to the other? Well, I think part of it was what was going on in uh, the world in general, and particularly okay. with the French Revolution. Um, okay. I think the so Sturm und Drang was really made up primarily of of young twenties people, and mostly men in their twenties, mm -hmm. um, and really kind of trying to look for something new. They were looking to this idea of you know freedom and. Um, you know, uh, subjectivity, uh, freedom of expression and that kind mm. of thing. And um, then when they saw the, how this came into play in, in actuality in the, in the French revolution and then after the aftermath, um, they kind of went, some of them at least kind of okay. went, Hey, wait a minute. This isn't exactly <laughs> what we had in mind. Um, and I think part of it also was just, um, you know, they were maturing and they yeah. were, um, you know, looking for something maybe a little bit more, um, stayed okay. and, um, that they could, that, that and sustainable. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So it, it sort of is the, that way that I mean, I'm thinking in terms of English Romanticism. This way that the French Revolution, uh, it, it had this power to galvanize, but it also like to 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 sort of energize this younger audience, but or or this younger group. But it also once it turned bad and got really bad, um, Reign of Terror, and then on into Napoleon and the Napoleonic Wars, uh, there was a, a real turn against it. I mean. Uh, thinking in terms of Wordsworth and Coleridge completely turning on their earlier ideals. Uh, okay. Yeah, please. Yeah, certainly. And then, and, and as I was saying, you know, you had kind of the two movements that grow out of Sturm und Drang. So romanticism, German romanticism and um, Weimar classicism, but Schiller and Goethe were really at the core of Weimar classicism. And as I mentioned before, they um, became friends in 94 and uh, collaborated on some things and did, uh, you know, uh, had a correspondence and really um, saw each other as being very like-minded. 
Gotcha. Uh, and Weimar classicism really lasted until um, was often considered to the heyday of it to have lasted until Schiller's death. Okay. Um, in 1805, but it was you know the torch was was carried on with it. Um, okay. But they really saw the Romanticists really saw um, the classicists as being kind of the villains. <laughs> They're <laughs> like they sold out. <laughs> so it, it, yeah, okay. So the parallel would be the way that um, I, I guess this is for the the English speaking audience. I guess in in English Romanticism, you had that younger cohort, the the Shelley Circle, the Byron Circle, the sort of Satanic School, so called, uh, which turned on the earlier romantics for selling out the revolution that that kind of there seems to be a sort of parallel phase except it didn't coalesce like the the earlier guys didn't coalesce into a new movement Mm -hmm. in in english romanticism all right so all right you had mentioned something off air uh when we were talking about what Goethe was like uh or, or sort of general attitude as a kind of combative um iconoclast or or someone who you know whatever it is i'm against it you know whatever you bring to the table i'll find a way to fight against it and you had this fascinating uh anecdote about his rejection of newtonian physics in favor of color theory right i mean i and i think he was just he just enjoyed being contrary Okay, um, okay. And so he, yeah, he, I mean, he was kind of a, a curmudgeonly in the sense that, um, he kind of thought he knew, um, he kind of dabbled in everything and was, yeah. could, could be a dilettante in pretty much anything. Um, but he, I feel, thought that he knew more than, he, than anybody else and he could <laughs> just go into any field and just show, um, you know, I, <laughs> To to the you know to the um, point of yeah we're trying to refute Newton. <laughs> okay, so kind of like a a, a less su- successful Stravinsky. That's what um, you know. I, I had a music appreciation class where the professor told us uh, Stravinsky's reputation amongst other composers was that um, at every phase of musical modernism. Somebody would innovate something, you know, bizarre and strange and brilliant. And then Stravinsky would step in, do that, perfect it, and then move on to the next weird innovation that somebody else had done, come in, perfect it, and then just move on because he got bored. Um, so this sounds like Goethe was in some ways attempting to jump into other people's work and perfect it and move on, but not always as successfully. But I, I, I just loved that that idea. Okay, I'm going to go to war with Newtonian physics um, just out of contrariness. Like just that, that general attitude, it, it, it says something about it. Yeah, I, certainly. And um, <laughs> I, I, and he, he definitely had a high opinion of himself. <laughs> Okay, so he dabbled in a lot of different kinds of literature, and 
you know, we were talking off air about how central he still really kind of is to German writing. What is that centrality? Is it that he had a hand in all kinds of literature? He did plays, he wrote poetry, he wrote sort of novels or proto novels. Is it just his facility with a wide variety of forms or is there something else there that writers really sort of have to encounter? Well, I definitely think it was, uh, for one thing, he, as you said, um, he really did a lot with a lot of genres. Um, his longevity certainly didn't hurt uh, because he was able to be really prolific. He lived okay. a, a long life. I think he lived to be 80, 84, something like that. Yeah. 83, 84. Yeah. Um, and so he really, his lifetime just spanned um, so many different um, mo- literary movements and um, sort of historical events that he could be reacting to. Um, and it, I think he, you know, he was around when um, sort of German literature and language was being shaped um, right. into sort of what it, what it is today. And um, he was just right in the thick of it. Gotcha, gotcha. And I and I just think also he's he's probably partially um, still considered so relevant because um, he's the the German author that's just most widely known. I mean, he he's you know everybody reads Goethe in school mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're a German speaker. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. So he's known throughout the the German speaking world as this kind of central figure, and it's, I guess, it's sort of like if if you're in high school, you have to read a Shakespeare play. If you're German speaking in high school, you have to read something by Goethe. Yeah, you um, would read Goethe. You would read Schiller. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. So it's that inescapable thing because our teachers keep giving it to us. Yeah, right, they're, but- <laughs> they're, the, they're, the, they're the chestnuts. <laughs> gotcha. All right. So let's turn to a little bit, uh, turn for a little bit to Faust itself. Now, you said he started it when he was a young man. He started it more or less when he was a student. Uh, put it away, picked it back up, put it away, picked it back up, put it away, picked it back up. What is going on with this thing? Why does he keep starting and stopping with this? Well, I think he just kind of got uh, thought he had gotten to the end of the road with it. Potentially, mm-hmm. um, he published of small um, several sections of it as a fragment mm-hmm. um, in the nineties, seventeen ninety, and I, I think he perhaps thought he had come to the end of the road with it, um, but then. I don't know, just got after Schiller's death, um, had the inkling to, to pick it back up and see what else he could do with it. Okay. Now, the weirdness of this is that it's uh, essentially based on a legend about a guy who sells his soul to the devil. Uh, Goethe was raised Lutheran, right? Mm-hmm. But kind of, sort of, more or less gave up on any kind of Orthodox Christianity. Right. Yeah, I mean, he really saw himself more as uh, just, you know, questioning uh, the the traditional notions of faith. He really saw himself as having kind of his own private mm-hmm. religion. 
Well, why was that? What, uh, what did Lutheranism do or not do? I mean, why go? All right, was this his contrarianist? Did he have a sort of theolo- uh, theological argument, or was this sort of like religion is dry and boring and sort of takes the life out of life kind of thing? Probably a little of both. <laughs> I mean, it's it's interesting to read the different things that um, Goethe wrote about religion, faith, um, and his own personal relationship with faith. Mm-hmm. Um, it really is, to my mind at least, um, and I'm not a Goethe scholar. There are people right. who spend their entire professional lives uh, just on Goethe. Um, but it, you know, from what I've read, it's, he, he writes something and then the next day he, you know, or the next year he, he writes something that seems to completely contradict it. <laughs> and so it's a little hard to pin down what he actually thought about religion. Gotcha. So he, he's not even doctrinaire in his own anti-doctrinaire right. stance. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So I, I mean, I guess that's a kind of honesty that he keeps thinking and rethinking and keep working. And, you know, it, it, I, listeners know that, or I, I think listeners know because I've ranted a little bit on here. I, I, I do not have an affinity for Emerson. Uh, <laughs> Emerson annoys the hell out of me, but I do respect the ways that he's open to change over time. You can see sort of like shifts and moves that he's thinking and rethinking things. It sounds like Goethe is in, in, in a, a similar mode that's really kind of admirable in that sense. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, I think there's something, you can really say there's something for everyone in Goethe, which might also speak to his his popularity. Gotcha. I mean, I am not a huge fan of Faust, to be honest. Right. Um, and uh, there are a couple of his other works that I also have some problems with, like collective affinities. Mm-hmm. Um we won't go into that <laughs> right now necessarily, but um, you know some of his poetry, especially his later poetry, um, I really enjoy and appreciate. Oh, wow. uh, so, you know, he he wrote as an older man. He he wrote some things that were almost not. I don't want to say naive, but just sort of um, almost sweet in their mm-hmm. nostalgia and kind of yearning for for youth and and looking looking forward to um you know kind of with not dread but just sort of um a little bit of sadness toward the end of life and things like that so um so like i said i I feel like there's something even if you have a strong reaction because i feel like some of his works are pretty polarizing yeah um that even if you have a strong negative reaction to one of his things you might find something else in his oeuvre that you could latch on to and enjoy gotcha all right so let's go back to faust for a second Mm -hmm. and and the question of theology all right it does just seem a really strange choice if you're not exactly a believer why are you going to this source that is so deeply rooted in these ideas of faith. I mean, in Faust, he, he really tweaks it. He really changes it around. He it's, it's idiosyncratic in terms of what exactly it means for Faust to be engaging in this, this, um, 
wager. I mean, mm-hmm. he Goethe transforms it from being, uh, I guess, a sell your soul type of thing to more of like a bet. Yes, and it, it's closer to Job than <laughs> to the Faust legend. Why then would he be drawn to this particular legend? Well, he said himself that um, he originally started working on it um, with a couple of influences in mind. One Mm. was a real case of um, a woman who killed her child. Uh, Sorry, spoiler for people who haven't read this. 200 years old, 300 years old. I think we're fine. Okay. (laughs) Um, But, but he, you know, he had read an account and, and um, there's, I think um, if I remember correctly, there's some, notion that he might have even gone to the um, execution. Oh, wow. But also in the air was, um, there was a a Faustbuch, uh, a book written about this real, supposed real figure, um, Faustus, uh, that had lived a couple centuries earlier and was supposed to have really been able to do supernatural things um, Mm. and with the help of the devil. Um, But more, I think more present for Goethe, his his more immediate influence were these um, puppet plays that Mm -hmm. would take up the figure of um, of Faust and uh, for entertainment purposes and sort of like a traveling troupe uh, would go around to different towns and, and put on this performance. So I think that might be part of the reason that there's such a, that um, Mephistopheles is such a, almost kind of like a sarcastic, yeah. witty, witty character um, is because it's coming more, it's more immediately influenced by these, these plays. Oh, puppet, puppet place, like low a low form of entertainment. Okay, so there's this weird thing that's that's going on. It's it's popular entertainment. It's it's low entertainment. It's sort of children's theater, I guess, if you will, or at least that's my my understanding of puppet shows. Just because I have kids who you can probably hear in the background. Um, but is he trying to elevate the material or does he see something in the material that he thinks is localized in this way that hits at, I guess, German language writing or that exemplifies something about the the people? Or is it just sort of like, hey, here's a cool idea. I wonder if I can elevate it. Yeah, I think, you know, when he first started out, like I said, he was 21. And so I I think he was just kind of trying something and, you know, uh, kind of experimenting around with what he was hoping to do as a writer. Okay. So it's just sort of like, let's see where this goes. And then over time, it develops in all kinds of different weird ways. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, cool. Cool, cool, cool. Um, Yeah, so... Faust isn't exactly your favorite uh, Goethe. What what are the problems you have with it? If you don't mind, well, I addressing some of those. I mean, my my frust- my personal frustrations with it, of course. Um, okay, I, I, I don't mean to interrupt you. Sure. Let me pull back for one second and say the reason I'm asking is because one of the things or one of the impulses behind this show is to start talking about our affective responses to the works that, you know, we study, we have to teach. We often engage these things in the sort of abstract 
uh, intellectual way. But I like talking to my friends about, okay, yeah, but how do you feel about it? <laughs> like, um, I, I had my, my friend, uh, Matt on here to talk about Moliere. And, you know, he, he was, uh, espousing a Moliere. He was espousing Montaigne because he loves French literature. And, uh, you know, we had this conversation and he said, you know, I, I can do all this intellectual stuff with extraordinarily boring plays because he's a drama, uh, a, a drama professor. And he said, but I really love talking about this stuff and I never get to talk about it because it's stuff that, you know, it's sort of outside of the field, but it's something that he really feels for. So to, to pull back around, uh, if you don't mind addressing that affective response, what is it that you, you have a problem with, with Faust? Because I, I also have problems with Faust. <laughs> I, I mean, I guess for me, of course, um, I think I was telling you before, I, um, as a grad student, I read this originally when I was studying for my comprehensive exams with um, a group of fellow female grad students. Mm -hmm. And we had um, sort of our, our conversations were around, we find, we found um, the Gretchen story. So, um, Frustrating, you know. Obviously, it's a it's a sign of the time, and obviously she's a type. Um, yeah, he was, you know, kind of instrumentalizing this this figure to just be sort of another. Um... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I don't know, station along the way in the uh, quest for you know, what, what Faust is looking for, um, ultimate understanding of, of the universe and how, you know, how everything is woven together. Um, but it's just, I, you know, yeah, she's just sort of this frustrating cardboard figure, um, to me and you just want to go wake up, <laughs> you know, yeah. you just kind of want to smack her and say, uh, wake up, uh, you know, he's not yeah. worth it. He's not who you think he is, um, that kind of thing. But you you have to, and and it's hard for me to understand, I guess, exactly what Goethe is trying to critique um, with with this whole relationship. Yeah, I, I okay, going into it <clears throat> on this reread, I was really really frustrated with Faust because it was like the character. Um, he's a jerk. 
Yeah. <laughs> he's, yeah. He's, uh, when he has the potential to really sort of expand and do all this other stuff, he gets caught up in basically seducing and abandoning this poor woman. She means next to nothing to him except an obsessional object. Um, she, I, I really felt like you were right. It's sort of like, all right. Um, you know, the thing I always talk about when I'm doing Hamlet is, okay, Hamlet is really, really bad to Ophelia. Yes. So is every other character in that play. In this weird way, Shakespeare also does a bad turn to Ophelia by having her be this kind of like blank, pathetic figure. She serves as nothing but this kind of blank, pathetic figure. Um, there have been, you know, tremendous analyses of her and stuff like that, but sometimes they don't quite seem convincing because she's, there's not much there. We're not given much to work with. And that seems to be like you could put it at Shakespeare's feet, right? Um, there's this way that I think you're right. Gretchen is this cardboard cutout character and Faust is just this jerk. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm reading this, I'm reading Faust right now with, um, in a faculty reading group with a group of all male colleagues. Mm-hmm. And, um, I brought up this, the same frustration. And, um, yeah, that was precisely, it's interesting that you bring up Ophelia because that was precisely one of the things, um, that they said to sort of try to defend. Mm-hmm. Faust and by proxy Goethe, <laughs> I think by, you know, by saying, yes, she, it's very Shakespearean. Um, yeah. She's very Ophelia like. Um, Maybe not the best ammunition though. No. <laughs> you might want to recheck that. Oh, you know, I think we were talking off air. The, the one character I find the most. Uh, fascinating or the one this I think says more about me than it says about the play but the one character I latch onto is Mephistopheles probably because of that kind of ironic nihilistic humor just at every step of the way he's just subtly tweaking and tearing everything apart yeah i mean Uh, he's he's definitely the most interesting character and and the most enjoyable i think yeah so all right it's composed in this weird hodgepodge way he keeps returning to it and and the ultimate effect is to have you know i keep thinking about the wasteland it's a fragmented work Right. It's in these bits and pieces, um, perhaps not as openly fragmented as the wasteland. But the reason I keep going back to the wasteland is because um, in the early 20th century, Elliot was supposed to have been so innovative in that technique. And I was like, well, hang on. I think there are <laughs> things that were already done. But it, it has this fragmentary quality. So, OK, it's almost like it's these jagged scenes that he doesn't really take the time to smooth over into a coherent whole. So it's sort of like jerking here, jerking there. There are these radical tonal shifts. I mean, sometimes even within the scene where you're like, wait a minute, I thought I was supposed to be laughing about this one. Um, why did he keep it that, that ragged? Like what was the impulse? Well, there's a lot of speculation on that. I don't think that there's any one, um, 
answer that explains it uh, okay. satisfactorily. Uh, I think I referred to it as a, a Frankenstein's monster <laughs> of a work um, at some point. But, you know, yes, as you said, he doesn't really... Um, you know, he doesn't do this big revision and smooth it all out and put in transitions and make it stageable, make it readily stageable. Yeah. Um, and I'm not I'm not sure why. Um, my thought is that perhaps because Faust, just as um, as Margarita is supposed to be a type mm-hmm. um, that maybe as he goes through these different attempts um, at finding what he's looking for, that as Mephistopheles is leading him through these different kind of almost vignettes, um, that he could just be representing man's different attempts at trying to find uh, fulfillment or or, uh, meaning. Gotcha. So the... Oh, you know, please. in in the age of enlightenment, when it's just it's almost frustratingly impossible. Gotcha. So there's this way in which the structure is an echo of this quest motif going throughout. How he keeps coming and going and coming and going and coming and going. There's no one thing that can coordinate the whole. Right. Yeah. Okay. Cool. All right. Thanks. I have some more questions and I'm I'm going to ask the one that you can't answer and then I'm going <laughs> to ask some that you can but uh the one that you can't answer and this is kind of a joke saying you can't answer it I'm sure you can come up with something but do you have any insights on Faust part 2 um <laughs> <laughs> I don't and I, I I guess I would say it's it's uh, very surreal. Yeah. Um very bizarre. I um haven't read it in so long that no I I probably won't <laughs> want to try to venture something on that. Gotcha. Uh because that's what we're we're kind of leading up to is Faust Part 1 is the the sort of preface to us reading Faust Part 2 and we're going to do a deep dive through that. Uh, but it's just so bizarre. I've read it (laughs) three or four times and every time I'm like, what the hell did I just read? Um, no, but we're planning to read Faust part two in the faculty reading group. And so, um, I will, I can come back and let you know, um, what my, uh, you know, 19th century, uh, specialist colleagues tell me to think about it. Okay, what they tell you to think about. It. So this faculty reading group is going quite well. No, but um, no, it's like, well, tell them I have a question, and that question is, what the hell? All right, so anyway. that'll, that'll go over really well, I'm right. sure. Okay, but the one that that I think you can answer, like your your field is 20th century uh, German literature, like you focus on the tw- the 20th century. Uh, what is the afterlife of Faust? I mean, I know there's Thomas Mann's uh, Doctor Faustus, which takes it and riffs on it in just amazing ways. But how has Faust resonated beyond just the moment? You said you were uh, interested in the ways that the Faust legend or the Faust myth or what Goethe does with it keeps having these resonances in German language literature. 
Yeah. Uh, well, that's a big question. <laughs> Very big question. Um, Should we go back to Faust Part Two? Is that? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, I've, I'm fascinated by Dr. Faustus, um, Mons, Dr. Faustus, uh, but it, you know the whole idea of the um, Faustian deal, the Faustian wager, mm-hmm. um, of course, has, has made it its way into world literature um, as a motif. I mean, you know, there are even musical, you know, musicals yeah. uh, that we know, um, Damn Yankees or things like that, that have, have taken it up. And I don't know that that would have happened if it hadn't been for Goethe. Okay. So- um, Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was I, so he changed the status of the legend. It started as this kind of low figure, and then he elevated something in it or popularized something in it. Marlowe's Faustus was back there earlier, but he hadn't even read Marlowe, right? Right. Yeah, that's correct. Okay, um, and Marlowe's Faustus is a god awful mess. <laughs> it's in a couple different versions. Uh, they don't always cohere. Uh, it's bits and pieces all over the place. There are tons of it that you're wondering why in the world would this have been included. Um, it's really fragmentary and strange. But he hadn't even uh, encountered that, so it it, it begins to develop or, or, or grow legs once he gets his hands on it. Yeah, and it's not, I think, um, not really a morality tale, which is yeah. what it uh, differentiates it from Marlowe. I mean, it's not meant to, it's not, it doesn't have a pedagogical purpose, really. Right. Um, I think it's just sort of an exploration of something that really resonated with people, sort of, okay, our, our entire world has um, has changed and been turned on its head and is is still in flux Mm -hmm. uh, and it's really difficult to deal with and um, so just sort of dramatizing that struggle Mm -hmm. uh, really you know made made a big impact because it, it was something that everybody was trying to deal with if they were paying attention and thinking at all. Well, no, I mean, that's that's really insightful. I can think of two romantic operas based on Faust, and I can think of a couple of other romantic compositions based on Faust. List did a few and so on and so forth. Um, you know, it, there's that weird moment. You're talking about it as being not a morality tale. Um, you know, the – the other repeated legend that I can think of again and again uh, before Faust is the Don Juan story. Right, exactly. Which is a morality tale. It's pretty yes. clearly a morality tale. <laughs> yeah. And then you have uh, uh, Mozart, you know, screwing with it with Don Giovanni, which makes it much more ambiguous. And then he's on the cusp of, I guess, everything that becomes the romantics uh in a way i mean the the timing is sort of off a little bit but you get to this moment of a very ambivalent don juan figure and then you move into faust it almost seems like this cultural progression in a way but i i might be reading too simplistically <laughs> well no i you know the don juan figure and the faust figure are are considered to be kind of i would say almost two sides of the same coin right in terms of um what what does the um individual look like in 
modernity. I mean, there's there's the whole book about it, right? The myths of right. modern individualism. Um, both of them are given a lot of um, time in that book, space in yeah. that book. Um, but interestingly, yeah, Faust isn't really in. Um, he's not taking up. Uh, a whole bunch of dalliances and keeping score, right? He's basically doing uh, pretty much the opposite, and he's hoping <laughs> to find the ideal in one woman. Right, right, right. So it's it's almost like the data-driven uh, Enlightenment side versus the transcendental idealism of Romanticism, but still using uh, women as the vehicle to find the end result. Um yeah, I I think you're right in pointing out the underlying misogyny. Um, that's a really disturbing aspect of the play. Right, and I think in general that you don't have very many female characters in these things. If, if you do, um, they really are, as I said, they're types, they're not... Mm-hmm. Um, they're not meant to be anything other than some something for the male protagonist to project right. onto. Right. So finally, if we could talk just very briefly about the versification, you'd mentioned that, um, well, what what is the versification of Faust? Like, what is the... Okay, Shakespeare had iambic pentameter. Uh, does Goethe have a line, or does he have a form, or does he have like a poetic uh, genre that he uses? Well, I think originally, if I'm remembering this correctly, he uh, he wrote it in prose. Okay, and so the the aspects of it, and I think this is another reason why it reads as so. Um, choppy is okay. that he's pulling from different um, tra- traditions and pulling from different genres, mm. which which was actually a really common thing in Sturm und Drang. Um, okay. The this idea of sort of um, mixing genres together, um, abandoning the rules, the kind of stodgy rules that you right. saw uh, prior to that in somebody like Klopstock. Yeah. Um, and and uh, really getting into um, yeah pulling together prose and uh, lyric and um, I'm saying lyric poetry right right <laughs> um, sorry so ex- sometimes sprinkle in sprinkle in a couple of German words here and there because I'm <laughs> now I'm thinking and translating back into, <laughs> into English. No, no, it's fine. Um, but he's, he's pulling a lot from the kind of German uh, folk song tradition, the German uh, Germanic verse tradition, as opposed to um, uh, sort of ro- more romantic traditions. Okay, um, gotcha. And then, and then pulling, you know, trying to make it kind of a um, Shakespearean okay. inf- influence German verse. So you get the – I mean the the thing that that we were sort of talking about it was the way that it, it, it occupies a couple of different registers at once. Like he can do the high verse. He can do the high Shakespearean rhetoric. Then he can go to this kind of like low verse or or I guess popular verse or even just body – Yeah, drinking, drinking yeah. songs. Yeah. <laughs> 
it's uh, it's I mean that's that's one of the things that I found kind of like structurally fascinating about it. Uh, okay, turning to Goethe after Samuel Johnson was kind of a relief. <laughs> um, we did not have a fun time with Johnson, but um, part of what made it really sort of fascinating or weird was the way that it had that kind of okay so here's the scene where we have this deep dark lamenting over the fate of humanity and then hey man we're gonna go to a pub and you're gonna ride a barrel and it's gonna fart fire and then you're gonna fly off into the night um (laughs) it can go like high and low i mean just within a very short amount of space and there's something really sort of exhilarating about that i found Uh And and I think it speaks to his um, his actual life experience and his personality. Um, You know, he he did he did like to party as a student, um, (laughs) I guess. So um, and so I think some of those things that he includes that are almost, um, you know, silly, lowbrow. Yeah. um, Even sometimes kind of whimsical. Um, he was just kind of reliving his uh, frat boy days. Not, I mean, not, not really frat boy, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, 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 more or less. Gotcha. Okay, well, thank you so much because this has really helped to contextualize Faust, to think about it uh, in a couple of different registers, to think about it uh, in terms of its resonance further on, to think about how it was composed, why it was composed, where it fits, and, and how Goethe fits into this whole thing. Um, and thank you so much for, for speaking to your, I guess, personal reactions to the text. I mean, that's really what this is all about is, okay, after the, the analysis, how do we really feel about these works of art that we're made to teach over and over and over <laughs> again? But, uh, yeah, please. Yeah, um, yeah, it was fun. And, um, you know, just, just as a warning, um, I'm, I'm sure that there were some inaccuracies in here. <laughs> this is my disclaimer. So that, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm imagining the hate mail is going to start oh, pouring well. in as soon as, as soon as this drops. So. <laughs> Well, we do have some uh, listeners in Germany, uh, and uh, we'll we'll see what happens. But if we do receive hate mail, they're, they're very kind people, and if they if we do receive hate mail, you will never hear about it. So thank you, Rachel, <laughs> You're for very coming welcome. on. I really appreciate it. Uh, no problem. That was a lovely discussion. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.